Ezra chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse 8 and following today. And as I read this passage this week, uh, I, I had several questions that came to mind. And I decided to use those as, um, as the structure for the message today. And if you're looking at your notes, you'll see that you don't have anything to fill in. Today, we have three questions that I want to answer from this text. And so we're in verse 8 of chapter 3. And it says this, Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, although many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the shout or and the sound was heard far away. As I read this over the last couple of weeks in my notes, I wrote down a number of questions. That's typically how I work through my message. I ask questions of the text, and then I try to answer the questions. This morning, I want to ask these three questions. What united them? The second question is, what part does the Word of God play in this? And then the third question is, um, how do I act when God shows up? These are the, the three main questions. The rest of the questions sort of fell under these. And as we work through this passage, I'd like for us to look at that and, and try to find the answer. The first question is, what is it that united these people? And we need to notice as we look that they are united. We saw that last week in chapter 3, verse 1. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. These people are united. They are working together. They are doing things in this way. There's a real significance to this for us. In our passage today, we see that um, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. And then look what it says, together with the rest of their kinsmen. That they are united together. They're doing this. Throughout this passage, we see that they're making their beginning together. They together are appointing. They together are being appointed. 
They are all shouting, praising, seeing, and weeping together. There is a unity in this passage within the people of God. They are united. This is something that we've seen as we've read through this. We read through the book of Genesis or read through the first part of Genesis and saw that God had worked through a group of people. You read the rest of the book of Genesis and you see how he gathers those specific people and they begin to move through the rest of the Bible. In the book of Exodus, we saw how the 76 people that had gathered together at the end of the book of Genesis had now become a a group of people that were united in the millions. And as we work through the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we saw this powerfully in the book of Acts, the story of the early church, where they did everything together. There's no such thing as a lone ranger follower of God. And so there's this unity. God calls people out of the world into his presence as a collection of individuals to become one body. And this is a message. There's a unity to God's people. And so this morning as we look at it, I'd like for us to look at two ways that they were unified in this passage. The first one is they were unified in their mission. How were they unified? They were unified in their mission, what they were there to do to build this structure. In verse 8, it says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. They began something, a beginning here in this passage. They're beginning to build together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and daughters. And look at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they have a mission This is what unifies them. And this is important. This morning for us to notice this unity because in the very next chapter, they're going to begin to be disrupted. When it says that they made a beginning, it means that the process did start. But it's important to recognize that this process isn't going to go through smoothly. They're going to need to remain united. Often things for you and I don't go as planned. Things get in the way, distractions, discouragement. And in this passage, we see the the importance of being unified because this very thing is going to happen. And it's important that they're continuing in this way that God is leading them. They're unified in their mission. What are they doing? Building the temple all together. Next, their mission is to use the temple structure for its intended purpose. They're unified first to build the temple, but their mission is not just to build it. It's also to use it for its intended purpose, to praise God. They're unified in that. It says that in verse 10, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And then look what it says. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. They're not just unified in building the temple, the mission to make God's house. 
They're also unified in the mission to praise God. And they're really engaged in this process. They're dressing for it. They've got the instruments for it. This is important. Their unity is all about what God has given them to do, their purposes. This is why God has them together. And they're all on the same page. Not only, though, were they unified in their mission to build the temple and to praise the Lord, but they're unified in their method. They're unified in the way they did it, the method that they build the house, the method by which they praise the Lord. What is that method? We've seen this time and again. It's God's word. The way they do things is according to what God says. And we've seen that in this passage so far. It led me to the next question. What part does the word of God play in their unity? What part of the, does the word of God play in the success of this book? It's their guide. Look at what it says here in verse 10. The priests in their vestments came forward with the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord. But they're not praising the Lord in some haphazard way. It doesn't say that they came together all randomly to just say things and do things that might in some way or other be praise. It says that they did it very, very specifically. The vestments that they wear are specific garments. They have a specific design. They have a specific purpose. They have a specific set of colors and, and, and materials. How do we know? What's our method for knowing? Well, it says right there, it says, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. According to a specific plan. The method that they use is God's plan and God's purpose. In chapter 1, verse 1, we saw that, that this whole book is happening according to the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. The method by which this is being communicated to us is as a fulfillment of God's word. What part does God's word play in this story? It plays a very significant part. It is their guide. In chapter 3, verse 2, last week we saw that they built the altar, the place where God is worshipped, as it is written in the law of Moses. And then in chapter 3, verse 4, it said twice, it said, as it is written and according to the rule. The method by which these people are united, the way they are united, is God's revelation, God's word. And it's very succinct here. When we get to talk about Ezra here, when Ezra appears in a couple of chapters, he is known to be a scribe of the word. <clears throat> he studies it. He presents it. He has collected it and gathered it. And here we see that the part that the word plays, the method by which they're united, is God's revelation. Everything that they have been doing so far has been according to the commands of God in his word. The feasts, the sacrifices, the use of the vessels, and even their priestly garments all find their origin in God's revelation. They're not just making this up. You know what I think? It'd be really cool if we worshiped the Lord this way. You know, it'd be really neat if we did this. Or, or I have an idea. I really feel like it would be great if we did this. None of those things happen in the book of Ezra. What happens in the book of Ezra is God's word says this, so we have to do this. 
the method or the way in which they worship is according to God's word. When they acted, their methods were based on the word of the Lord and they were united in this. They were all together in this. And as we look back today in this passage and we think, what about us? It's no different for you or I. The word of God shows us where to go. The word of God shows us what to pay attention to. And the word of God is the method for us to know how to follow God's commands. For example, what we're doing here right now, today, we're not doing this because we gathered together and we decided, you know, it'd be really cool if we did this and maybe we could also do this. And and why don't we do this? And I really like it when we do this. No, the reason we meet together and do things the way we do them is because God gives us instruction on how and when to do it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, as he's talking to Pastor Timothy, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Be devoted to this, church. Be devoted to this. Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We have commands that guide us for what our Sunday morning ought to look like. Acts chapter 2 gives us a picture of of when they gathered together what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As we are following God's will and following God's direction and so on for our congregation, we need to do the things that God has given us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, on on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up. In 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it speaks of giving generously, you know, that the reality of what we do here, God has given us directions for. There are things that need to happen for us to worship Him appropriately. These are just a few places, but when we look at God's Word, the method by which we do things, what part does the Word of God play in this is important. It's our guide. It's not only our guide in what to do. It's not only our guide in how to do it. It's our guide into joy, into peace, and into praise. God's word is that. Look at verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And then there's this in your Bibles, you'll see that there's an indention and it's spread out a little bit and the format changes. I'm pretty sure most of our Bibles do that now. When it says, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel, he's quoting another passage. He's quoting another psalm or a part of a psalm. I think it's part of Psalm 105, but he's also quoting David's giving of thanks in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Where they're actually using the Bible, using the scriptures, using the word of God, To guide them to praise. To tell them what to say to God. To tell them the words to use. So that it's not up to us to come up with more and more extravagant things that we can say about God. But that we would use God's word to guide our thoughts. What part does the word of God play in their worship? It's intrinsically a part of their worship because they're actually using God's word. The reference to the Psalm of David, it's the actual words of the scriptures. 
It's really precious to note that these words were first sung when David was bringing the ark into the temple. Uzzah had died. David had repented. He was angry and feared the Lord. And then he went back to the word to find out how exactly are we ought to bring this ark back to the tabernacle. And he did it the right way. And as the process goes, he began to praise the Lord. And what an appropriate song to sing now that the temple is being rebuilt and the people are back on the right track with the Lord. Turn back to, to the left to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Turn to the left in your Bible to 1 Chronicles 16. It's two books to the left. Chapter 16, starting in verse 8, and we can see the content of what they're singing. When, when Ezra reports that they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord... And then he gives this example. That doesn't mean that they only said this verse. What it means is he's pointing back to the reference of the source. What were they singing? What was the content? And we can see this is fantastic. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Think about this as they're here praising God at the, at the inauguration of the foundation of this temple. It's all about God. This is what they're singing. What is the method for their unity? It is the word of God. The way they know what to say and the way they know how to say it came from his word. Give glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Oh, church, what a fantastic reality of the word as our guide. The word guides their method. It, it gives them joy. It gives them peace. It reveals to them the hope and the help of God. Do you ever wonder what to say when you think about God? You find a situation and you wonder, how am I supposed to respond in faith? What would God have me do right now? Where should I turn? What should I do? The example from the book of Exodus is we should go to the word of God. We should listen and learn and love God through his revelation. Throughout this book, they make choices. Their activities reflect what God has given them already. And they're unified together in the word of God. It's fantastic. They return to their roots and rely on the man after God's own heart to guide their praise. In chapter 3, verse 11. And here they are, fulfilling the truth of God's word. Not only, though, is it a guide. What part does the word play? It's not just a guide. It doesn't just give them instruction. We're seeing here in this passage and, and further that it's a guard. It's a guard. It shows them how to stay safe. It shows them... It protects them from straying outside of his will. It establishes boundaries for their thinking and for their feeling and for their doing. When, when David was moving the ark, he was moving it contrary to God's word. God had given a specific plan for how the ark was to be moved. And it, was, it had holes in it for poles to be stuck through. And then the priests were to stand away from it and lift it up on their shoulders and walk with this to wherever they were going to place it. That was God's plan. That was God's command. That was what God intended. 
And if David had used the Word of God as a guard, if he had focused on what God's Word said and done it appropriately, there would not have been an oxen to stumble. And there wouldn't have been the opportunity for Uzzah to reach out his hand and to steady the ark. If David had done what God's Word had revealed, the Word would have guarded Uzzah's life. But as it were, the Word of God didn't play a part in David's decision. Uzzah reached out to touch the ark and he dies immediately. When Eli's sons or Aaron's sons offer strange fire before the altar, God strikes them down immediately. Now, it didn't have to happen. God had said, this is what I want to happen, and this is how I want it to happen. But what they did was something strange. It was something different from what God's Word had said. And because they didn't listen to God's Word, God's Word didn't guard them. They didn't do it God's way. They did it their own way. They were innovative. They thought, you know, if that works, this might work even better. If that's kind of cool, this might be even cooler. If that smells good, this might smell even better as they worked the incense or whatever happened. But God's word didn't guard them because they didn't obey. It's important that we think about that. The Bible shows us how to stay safe. Throughout the word, there's revelation after revelation about God's terror the awful reality of God. The author of Proverbs says it this way, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. We see in the, in, in the uh, Bible that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Even when Moses and the 70 elders went to meet with God, it said they saw God, but the description next is of what color the floor is because nobody can see God and live. God is significantly other than we are. And so he has given us his word to protect us from ourselves, to protect us from himself. Way too often we think of the Bible as if it were God's purpose to kill our joy, though. Oh my goodness, this Bible is just something that tells us, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's just a killjoy. As if God's purpose is to guard us from from enjoying anything in life. But that's not the purpose. It's to keep us safe. Everything the Bible restricts is for our benefit. Often we read, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. Why don't we read the Bible, oh my gosh, Look what I get, 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 look what I get. There are so many promises in here, but we read the Bible and it's such a killjoy. Steve, you're such a killjoy when you read the Bible. But think about this. When it commands us to keep the marriage bed undefiled, it isn't trying to keep us from enjoying life to the fullest by shackling us to one person for life. No, it's protecting us. It's protecting us from emotional devastation. It's protecting us from shallow relationships. It's protecting us from perverted habits. It's setting up boundaries for our children so that they can grow and flourish within a secure dynamic intended to ground them in the good and faithful promises of their creator. When God sets boundaries on human relationships, it is not to kill our joy. It is to provide a nurturing cultivation for the reality of our joy. What part does the word play? It is a guard. 
It saves our life. It's powerful truth. We're going to see in the next chapter that there's a group of people that want to come and help these Jews, these Hebrews, these Israelites. But they're like, no, you can't do that. And we're going to see later on it's because their focus wasn't on God's word. Not only is it a guide, what part does the word of God play? A guide and not only is it a guard, but it's God's word. It's their God's word. What part does the word of God play in this passage? It is their God's word. God takes himself seriously. And so should we. They are functioning according to what God had revealed because he's their God and they must. And this is where the rubber meets the road. When we see this, this is what they are doing. This is where they're coming from. When they praise in verse 11 and they sing responsibly praising and giving thanks to the Lord, they're saying he is good. He's their God. Everything about 1 Chronicles 16 is this. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds. Sing to him. Glory in his holy name. Seek the Lord. Seek his presence. Remember the works that he has done. What part does the word play? It's their God's word. It's their God's word. And he has spoken. It's not about some kind of academic exercise that they're going through. This is an intimacy with the great God of the universe. The part that the word plays is a revelation from their creator and sustainer to their hearts. How helpful is that? I mean, that to me just continues to emphasize the unity of God's people centered around God's revelation of himself. What united them? God united them. God united them. The third question that came up for me was a response to this, right? How do I act when God shows up? How do I act when God shows up? Look how they did. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised God or praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So there's this great shout. There's this passion I mean, they're not just saying, oh, hey, did you see the temple? Like when we drive by and we're like, hey, you see they're doing construction? I know it won't be a big deal, but it'll kind of be a big deal. The first time I drive on that and I come home when they're doing this repair up here and, they come, and I come home and I'll be just like, oh, my gosh, I drove on the road. <laughs> I drove on the new road. That's kind of cool because I was pretty loud about complaining when there was water on the road last time, right? I made a big deal about that. And now I'm like, oh, my goodness, it's done. I might do that once. But this is where they are right now. This is a response. There's a, there's a passion here. These people aren't just doing something new. They're experiencing what God's people have experienced. All the way back to even where David. They're using David's words of praise. They're using David's words. There's a continuity here. They are not just praising God on their own. They're joining in, which is what we've done today. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. They have this passion. And look what they're doing. They're praising God. 
How do I act when God shows up? Do I have this kind of passion? Do I have this focus on praise? Am I captivated by who he is? I mean, think about how great this God actually is. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's unchangeable. In his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice and truth, this is our God. And he deserves to be praised. But how do we react when he shows up? Here, they're all shouting with a great shout. But in verse 12, it says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice. There's a great shout of joy, but there's a loud voice of weeping. Although many shouted aloud for joy, there was a great sound of weeping. This morning, how do we respond when God shows up? What is our response? As we look at this, there's a very public reality of God's worship. That church is what we're doing here. This is a public reality of God showing up. This is praise. What do we do? There was trumpets. This was no secret meeting of a few conspirators. This is a public Celebration of the God who has once again delivered his people. These people want everyone to know. These people are extremely, extravagantly voicing the truth of what happened. Either in their praise and joy or in their weeping. It's very public. And I've been challenged by this. Is my worship obvious? Is my worship obvious? Do I respond to God when he exposes me to himself, to his truth and his word? In so very many ways, you and I wear our passions and our feelings right on our shoulders for everyone to see. We see something we like and we smile. We laugh. We talk about it. We share about how much it affects us. We all do this. We're very vocal. We see something that we do not like and it's the same thing. We talk about how much we don't like it. We frown. We groan. We're very vocal about these kinds of things. But what do I do when God shows up? All of these people returning to the place where God has promised to bring salvation to his people, all of the reality of God at work, they are now here, back on the right track, in Jerusalem, where God promised to keep his promises. And they shout for joy. They shout for joy. I think about the older ones weeping. Because it wasn't anywhere near as spectacular as the first temple, where we see that when we read in Haggai. As they look at the foundation here, the temple was less in Ezra than it was before. Even though a number of the vessels were returned, there's no ark. There's no bronze sea. There's no extravagant splendor. As these older ones look around, they see less than 50,000 people returning from Israel. Millions less than there were just 70 years ago. The lineage of this, the tribes has defaulted. They can't even track everybody anymore. All because of sin. 
All because of sin. Sin always destroys. Sin always decimates. Sin always, always crushes. I read this this week. This mention of the weeping at the temple of, or the foundation of the temple shows us that while the people have been restored to the land, they can tell that all the glorious end time promises that the prophets made are not coming to pass. The desert isn't blooming. The Messiah isn't reigning. Jerusalem isn't being exalted. There is a sense here in which they are already seeing prophecies fulfilled, but not yet seeing all of them realized. This points to the reader of Ezra to look forward. It isn't now. There's something coming. When When the older people weep in comparison... There's a sense of soberness that you and I ought to recognize. They see it's not as good. They know God's promises that it will be better, but they don't see it yet. All they know is that right now, right now, God's at work. The younger ones cheered because it's so much more than they had ever experienced. All they had known was exile. All they had heard were stories about their heritage. And now it's real. And now it's real. And they can't stop praising God. It's connected to their hearts. This morning as we think about this, as we think about the unity, we need to remember that it does look like something. Unity of God's people looks like something. When I look out over over this congregation, I made the point that there's four generations in the building at least, right? When we look around, most of us all look like each other. Y'all have been here for years and years and years. And your unity has to do with hereditary genealogy. Your unity has to do with proximity. You've been together for so long. But I want you to think about this. Even though everyone in here is related to just about everyone else, sometimes that becomes a hindrance. And sometimes we can't see that. Coming from the outside in, I can see that. I can see that I will never be a mitlighter. I will never really be connected to Mitlighters. And I feel that. When we have visitors that come in that, that didn't grow up here, that don't know the same people that we know, that leave our Sunday morning services and realize that nobody said anything to them, nobody greeted them, nobody cares about them. We talk with each other because we have history, so we can talk about things that we're related about, that family is connected, but we need to be really careful. Is our unity familial? Or as Christians, are we united by our mission? Are we united by the method that God has for us here? 
And I want to say that there's a danger for us to miss those other two things and think that church is just a social gathering. And I would want to challenge everyone to think about that. You see, we gather and we assume that others feel the same way we we do. We gather together and, and assume that everyone's involved with things that we're involved in. But we're not. We need to be united around something that we are all engaged in. And that needs to take precedence. And so I don't know what that looks like for you. Right? I don't know exactly what that looks like for you in, in your situation, in your families, and your relations. But there is a sense that as professing Christians, we're united in the mission of the gospel. And that you and I are united in the method of God's word. And that somehow or other, we need to take a step in the direction where we are gathering and uniting around those two things. And those two things become the focus of our fellowship. The use of the word of God in the lives of his people. What do we, what do we take from that today? I want to say that this is a real encouraging thing. It is. They are actually using God's word to praise God. And you and I can turn to the exact same passage and look at the exact same things. And praise God in the exact same way that this body of believers in Ezra did. The word of God plays a huge part in our lives also. This is what we have been called to do. God's word is direct. God's word is powerful. You and I have the exact same scriptures. We are worshiping and serving the exact same great God. He never changes. His word still stands as our guide and our guard. And that needs to make a difference. We need to be treating this as if it is the source of our life. Our life needs to be ordered where when people see what we're doing, they could write the summary of our life. And when they get to a part, they could say, according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of Moses, according to the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, that those kinds of things would be part and parcel to our summary. Is it yours? Is it something that people could look at you and summarize their, your life by God's word. Or maybe God's word doesn't play a part at all. We need to think th- through those things. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to know it. We need to trust it. How do we act when God shows up? How do we act when God shows up? What does that look like for us? It's really nice to talk about talk to Emily and Spencer about the new baby. Babies. Emily's going to have a little boy. Mary Elizabeth have a little girl. It's really nice to talk to them. How you doing? How you feeling? I sit there while they go through, Emily goes through this whole long list of baby shower gifts. She's so excited. But here's the deal. That's kind of neat. But I don't know that there might not be an evening the first week or two of November that I send out a text saying pray for us as 
we race to Chattanooga so that I can just see that little baby and then rush right back. It'll be one of those crazy trips. I'm not going to go there to see the precious blankets or the elephant pajamas, right? I'm not going to go there so that I can fiddle with the, the, that cool little seat that she got. I'm going to go there because presence makes a difference. I'm going to go there because there's going to be a little baby. My little grandson, my little granddaughter. What do we do when God shows up? I want to think about that. It's quite appropriate for us to weep when sin is exposed in our life. When God's holiness is contrasted with our fallenness. It's appropriate for us to respond that way and we ought to. And it's also appropriate for us to respond to the glory of God's sovereignty over us. Joyful that he's connected with us. His presence makes a difference. And I love what it says in the last verse. Look at verse 13. It says, The people shouted with a great shout, and the shout was heard far away. Oh, church, I I pray that's us. I pray that that would be us. That we would think of the glory of the gospel. That, you know, you and I are being built up into a spiritual house ourselves. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. That we are being built up into a spiritual house. That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people after God's own pleasure. For one reason, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Church, for you and I today... What do we do when God shows up? We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. That Jesus Christ would work in us and through us to give him glory. He's the fulfillment of this chapter. He's the fulfillment of all the chapters. And that you and I have the opportunity to experience this life in truth. That we would proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. What are we going to do? God has shown up. Let's give him glory. Let's pray. Good Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Christ, thank you for your presence. And I ask you to work in our souls, that we would know you, and we would love you and trust you, that we would come to you, that we would repent and believe. For your glory's sake we pray. Amen.